You're listening to episode 16 of the Copyright and Intellectual Property Podcast. I'm Jason Tucker, and I've settled over a billion dollars in copyright claims for the world's largest studios. Over the last 15 years as the expert pirate hunter, IP problem solver, and enforcer, I have helped shape copyright law, the processes, and the landscape that exists today. So how do you keep your IP organized, protect it from pirates, and make even more money off of your content? With real-life insight the stories from the trenches, this is the Copyright and Intellectual Property Podcast. I want to start by saying to you, I am sorry for not delivering an episode for two weeks. I made a newbie mistake by not having episodes on standby in case of an emergency, and the emergency happened. If I sound winded, forgive me. I've been out of commission from a back injury that landed me in the hospital into an MRI machine on meds and now just beginning physical therapy and stretches. I have two herniated discs in my lower back that are pinching nerves, causing pain down both sides of my left leg, and the muscles are in spasm. I had an epidural last week to load steroids into the affected area, and that coupled with everything else, plus daily chiropractic visits, I feel like I'm on the mend. I've had an issue for years, and I'm supposed to keep my core strong if I want to avoid problems. This is a direct result of me not working out and keeping my core in order. I've never been in such sustained pain in my entire life. It's been horrific. Melissa has been an amazing support as I have been useless. So thank you for understanding. A listener, client, and friend, Ford Fisher from News to Share, sent me a text that read, I've been listening to your podcast and really like it. It seems mostly about pirates, and also that was a good one uh, recently on audio misuse, a suggested topic, how to read and get a proper contract in the first place. Well, great idea, Ford. So we're going to jump in. This is how to read and get a proper contract in the first place. And we're going to discuss good deals and horror stories I've seen with licenses. This episode will help you in becoming familiar with terminology and things to look out for as you're moving through the business of your business. So we'll start with licensing agreements. A licensing agreement is exactly that, an agreement, a contract between parties. Typically, there are two parties. There can be more. The licensor, meaning the person or entity granting something, and the licensee or a licensee, the person or entity who is receiving the right to use or do something. In our main work, licenses typically grant rights to use video, images, brand names, trademarks, or patented technology. And in exchange for a license, the licensee pays a fee more often than not called a payment or royalty, depending on how the license is structured and what it's for, meaning one-time payment or flat rate monthly payments or payments based on number of views or downloads. What It can be any combination. Typically, a license allows a party exclusive or non-exclusive use. Exclusive use, meaning the licensee is the only one who can do anything with the content or rights they are licensing. Non-exclusive, meaning they can use it and so can anyone else you as the owner grant a license to. And these are the typical basic elements of kind of who and what. This is probably a good place for me to, again, share that I'm not an attorney, though I do want to share what I see and what I think you may want to be aware of because of the problems I've seen around certain licensing issues and what our clients see. The biggest issue I see, we see, uh, are licenses changed without one party sharing that change with another party. So here's my public service announcement. Find an attorney who won't break your piggy bank to review agreements before you sign them. I would suggest that you tell 
everyone that works for you to never agree to any agreement unless you authorize it. Just eliminate the liability so you don't become a horror story. And I've got a few of those coming up. Make sure whatever agreement you're signing has the terms you agreed to clearly outlined. It's really important for you to understand what's written. And if you don't understand certain language, get your own counsel. Ideally, someone who doesn't work with the other side to explain it to you. And if you can't afford that, tell the other side you don't understand what they wrote and you want clear language that you do understand in that place. Please don't be embarrassed. Do not be embarrassed or allow the other side to try and embarrass you because you don't understand certain language. Look, some legal language is just confusing. It's important. It's really important because one misstep and you and your portfolio, your hard work could be jeopardized in ways you never even thought of. So here's what I mean and how that shows up. And I'm not suggesting that what could be construed as sneaky in nature is always the case because through a series of whatever, as things travel back and forth, this does happen by mistake. But language changes also happen because someone wants to be sneaky. No matter the reason, you still need to read every license agreement or better yet, have your attorney read every license agreement before you sign it. It's worth repeating. Sneaky or not, one misstep and you, uh, you could be in a world of hurt around your ability to do anything with a particular piece of your IP library or your entire library. So story time. The craziest story I've heard lately was from a producer of movies who has a successful company and is in a hot mess. This producer hired, I shouldn't laugh, but it's just, it's so frustrating to even hear. This producer hired a web design company to just make their website or so they thought. The agreement was an online agreement. One of the producer's employees, as an authorized agent of the company, digitally signed the online agreement for what they thought were simply web services. What did not happen was having the employee or the producer, or better yet, their attorney carefully read this online agreement before anyone clicked, agreed, accepted, and digitally signed it. This web company did dirty, sneaky shit. They buried language in the agreement that gave the design company the right to use any work they touched in this producer's library. Let me be clear in case that wasn't clear. Not just for use for this company's website, any use for any content they touched. And in the making of the website, they made a point of touching it all. So according to the agreement, they can do anything they want with that content. Ponder that level of BS for a few seconds. Now, if you're thinking, holy shit, yeah, you you would be spot on. The web services company now has the right to sell, license, and exploit any of the content that they touched from this producer's library. And let me tell you, they're doing exactly that and they're making money doing it. So that's about to be a lawsuit. This is not a new trick. In that same vein, we have a client who caught something like this uh, a while back. When their employee went to check their royalty stats online, there was a page that came up first. And the page said, we've updated our terms. Please click and agree and digitally sign below to continue. Now, smartly, the employee who saw this stopped, did nothing and told his boss. And that agreement, if he would have accepted it, would have granted the ability to, again, do whatever with the content that already fell under a previous agreement they had. Having correct spidey senses, our client asked us to go fish. And it turns out that even though our guy didn't agree, that company had been using the content outside of the terms of the original agreement they had with our client. They were trying to make what they had been doing outside of the scope of the deal part of a new deal 
to cover their ass. Uh, the result of this situation is currently an aggressive, active lawsuit that's been going on for years now in two countries. Another client had this situation come up with a client whom they license content to weekly. So again, this back and forth, sometimes there's issues, sometimes there's not. Uh, in today's world, as I'm sure you know, digital deals are regularly on the fly. This is not uncommon. News photographers have been operating like this for years. Paparazzi have been operating like this for years. And I would suggest that with the internet and new distribution systems, other types of content, producers are dealing with licenses more than ever. So our clients sent off what they call a common client license, and the licensee company sent a, quote, updated version of their license agreement for him to use, saying it was a procedural update and to start using that one. So I'll quote the company's president. I read it, and indeed, they had subtly switched the terms from non-exclusive to exclusive, exclamation point. I messaged them, and they basically said, oops, here's the non-exclusive one. So if he wouldn't have taken the extra step of reviewing it, that content and potentially other content would have been unusable by our client going forward. So imagine this, if they wouldn't have caught it and continued licensing that content, they could be liable for damages and wide open to a lawsuit. Now, I'm not saying that their client's client was being sneaky because it's not uncommon for uh, lawyers in, in big companies to redo agreements, things get changed, and it becomes commonplace back and forth over the course of a couple of weeks, and then you haven't sent them anything, and then boom, you get it. So for them who sent it to you, it's common, but for you, it's not uncommon. And this is how most, quote, boilerplate changes are figured out, which takes us into boilerplate language. Boilerplate language allows certain industry-specific agreements to read the same way. Now, boilerplate meaning standard industry-accepted language. And because we get used to seeing this boilerplate language back and forth, it can be easy to sneak new language in between that. And, and those changes can completely change terms. So with the distribution vehicles that are available to us in this moment in time, that could be millions of fans on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, Spotify, etc. Term-based boilerplate language needs to be reviewed more often. This came up, Mark Jaffe, who's a brilliant uh, IP entertainment attorney, talked about this recently. Uh, the buyer, to jump into that, the buyer of Taylor Swift's original catalog is learning that lesson now. Now, I won't go into the now solved dispute regarding Taylor Swift and her former manager, but Eric Gardner from The Hollywood Reporter with quotes from uh, attorney Mark Jaffe intimated how boilerplate language is used and will be an issue if it's not reviewed. Now, there's a link to this article in the show notes. Eric did a wonderful job summarizing what could be highly confusing. The article is called Taylor Swift versus Scooter Braun and the Imminent Re-Recording War. The end of the story is that Swift can re-record songs like Shake It Off in 2020. Historically, the music industry, the music business, never paid much attention to the boilerplate language that granted the artist these rights after a five-year period. The industry didn't pay attention to it because they figured an artist wouldn't have the ability to pay for re-recording and communicate with enough fans to make it financially viable. Remember, up until recently, record companies had the deals with record stores. Labels never gave much attention to the possibility that they could be minimized in the distribution process by a name artist. No one anticipated that one person could click a button and talk to millions of fans. So everything that seems normal today is still relatively new. 
It wasn't until Live Nation came on the scene that partnering or licensing the right to produce live shows with an artist for a music tour was even viable. Live Nation goes into partnership with an artist or a band for their tour. And before Live Nation, labels would control this experience and bill the artist all the way. Sometimes these artists that were paying the labels owed the label money after the tour was over. So Live Nation said, uh, and, and I'm sure they do different deals, but this main one kind of blew the doors off the business. Live Nation came in and said, hey, screw that. We're going to front the money and together with the artist, we and they can make real deserved money. And it's brilliant. And I think as a result, taking the number of shows into account, concerts and festivals are now cooler than ever. And the artist is more incentivized to put on a kick-ass show. So since we're on boilerplate, I'll share one last example of a huge hanging issue that's a direct result of boilerplate language. And to the best of my knowledge, this hasn't been dealt with yet. And I don't know if anyone's even noticed it. Maybe it'll be a thing. Maybe it'll won't. But but contractually, I think it's a thing. So back in 1996, 97, 98, the Internet was this mysterious thing to many people. And at the time, the American Film Marketing Association, which in 2004 was renamed the Independent Film and Television Alliance, the IFTA, provided the boilerplate licensing agreements that almost everyone in the film and TV industry used to do licensing deals. It, it just made it easy. You simply agreed to an amount, a time, specific rights, you fill in the blanks and everyone could sign. Sometimes right in the hotel room in Cannes or Italy or Santa Monica, California, where major events like the Cannes Film Festival or the American film market were taking place. And they have updated agreements now and it still operates basically the same way. During that time, some licensed rights to a work for a termed period. So let's say seven years, at which time the rights would revert back to the owner. And again, they could be licensed out to another. I did a lot of deals where the boilerplate language, and if I'm remembering this right, read all exclusive rights in into the work forever and throughout the universe in perpetuity. This was in the music business as well. That language is not uncommon. Then there was boilerplate that included something like TV, satellite, cable, pay-per-view, and wait for it, internet. In English, this means that there are companies that forever have the exclusive rights to broadcast certain films and TV shows on the internet for Germany, Japan, the UK, Italy, France. You get the idea. This means anyone that is serving content into those countries is violating that distributor's rights. It hasn't been until last year that blocking has even become a functional technology. And even now, it's not a perfect technology. But perfect or not, interfering with the rights of another in many parts of the world exposes the infringer to liability. So to use a a real-life example in simple English, Netflix may have a license for a film that was already licensed exclusively to another in another country for another country. And if that is the case, unbeknownst to Netflix, they're violating the licensing agreement of another. Wild, right? Yeah. So again, this is why it's important to have such clear language. So as we wrap up this episode, there's a few items to remember. Agreements should not be scary. Uh, You have something and someone wants to pay you for it under specific terms. So that's about it. It's cool. Language can change at times even when getting passed back and forth. So please remember to review every version before you sign any deal. If you don't understand any language, ask someone not connected to the other side for support and understanding. And if not, ask the party you're negotiating with to change the language to language you do understand. Don't be embarrassed to share that you don't understand. Your job is to create, 
not write agreements. Language can get complicated and sometimes it's on purpose. So whoever wants to license your work wants your work. So I imagine they would want to support you in getting clear. Check to make sure that the deal matches your main terms, specifically if it's non-exclusive or exclusive. From my experience, typically, it's not a good idea to let employees sign on your behalf. They may be cool with you today, but tomorrow you never know. They can put you into some really uncomfortable positions. It's your content. You don't have to do all the licensing work, but you at least need to be the person who knows the elements and signs the deals. Don't become another horror story. And finally, celebrate that you're licensing your hard work. How awesome is that? So I hope this information helps you protect your content. I'm more than happy to answer questions and support you. We have a group if you'd like to join it in Facebook. It's called, it's an intellectual property HQ community. It's our Facebook group. If the podcast episode was informative or helpful to you in your endeavors, please take a moment and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. If you have already gifted me with your review, I truly appreciate you. The kind words and reinforcement that we are providing a useful message is, is fuel for me to do more. We launched Intellectual Property HQ in this podcast to teach. So hearing that we are really it fills me up. So truly, truly, thank you. Happy hunting. Jason Tucker is not an attorney. All of the information shared on this free podcast is his opinion and not legal advice. Be sure to subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. See you next time.